0: Hina Mystery, and you're listening to Deliberations on Diaspora, a podcast on global diaspora history. This podcast was created by the students of History 404, themes in diaspora history at Queen's University in Canada. This course addresses themes such as mobility, borders, citizenship, displaced peoples, race, and labor. Students were assigned topics and sources related to diaspora culture and identity and had to speak about them. I wanted to thank the Department of History at Queens for their support and funding, as well as CFRC, the campus radio station. The music for this podcast was provided by Arez Zobari, and the song is entitled The Fig
1: Tree.
2: Hello listeners, welcome to the Poetry Pals podcast. My name is Ian, and I'm joined with my co-hosts Bronte. Hi there. And Sarah. Hi. Today we will be discussing Joy Kagawa's The Splintered Moon, a short book which contains a collection of poems written by Kagawa. We will be discussing her poetry in relation to the greater theme of diaspora and also pick out some personal favorite poems to do deep dives on. Before we begin, however, it is important to establish some context in regard to Kagawa's personal background and the history of Japanese Canadians in Canada. Bronte, can you tell us a little bit about Kagawa?
1: You bet I can. So The Splintered Moon is a collection of poems by Joy, published in 1967 in New Brunswick, Canada. With Joy's first literary piece, this is one of many collections of poetry that was written to deal with and discuss the traumas of Japanese internment camps during World War II in Western Canada. Joy is of Japanese descent and was born and spent her early childhood in Vancouver in 1935. But when she was six years old, her and her family, among thousands of other Japanese Canadians, were forcibly removed from their homes along the coastal areas and placed in internment camps in the interior of British Columbia and Alberta. Later on, Joy studied education at the University of Alberta and music at the University of Toronto. Since then, she's received multiple awards, including a national award from the National Association for Japanese Canadians, and is also a member of the Order of Canada and the Order of British Columbia, so she's very highly recognized within Canada. Joy is celebrated for her literary works that deal with many issues involving Japanese internment in Canada, and has worked to gain compensation for her community. The Splintered Moon brings up issues of race, identity, dignity, and power, as we'll be discussing later on through our analysis of poems.
0: As you mentioned Bronte, Joy and her family, along with thousands of other Japanese Canadians, were forced into Japanese internment camps in 1942. Ian and I will give some historical background on the internment camps, as well as residual effects that they have had on the Japanese-Canadian community. The exclusion of certain groups from Canadian society was not new, with residential schools for First Nations people and the head tax that was implemented on Chinese immigrants in the 1800s. The internment camps began because of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, which sparked fears of of Japanese invasion in Canada. As a response, the RCMP arrested suspected Japanese operatives and the Royal Canadian Navy impounded 1,200 Japanese-owned fishing boats on the West Coast. To appease the government, Japanese newspapers and schools were shut down voluntarily. On February 24, 1942, Prime Minister William Loyne Mackenzie King issued an order to remove and detain any and all persons from any protective area in the country. While these orders were broad enough to detain any person, They were specifically used to target Japanese Canadians along the West Coast. On March 16, 1942, the first Japanese Canadians were brought to internment camps in B.C.'s interior. All property that could not be carried was taken into government custody, which was then liquidated in 1943, so Japanese Canadians lost all of their property. Special trains carried Japanese Canadians to areas that were previously ghost towns in B.C.'s interior. Conditions in the camps were overcrowded and poor. Women and children lived in livestock buildings, and there was no running water or elect- electricity. Those who resisted internment were sent to prisoner of war camps in Ontario. Over 90% of Japanese Canadians were uprooted during the Second World War.
2: Yes, yeah, so to add to what Sarah said, it is important to note the residual effects which came as a result of Japanese Canadian internment. As one could imagine, this event left scars on those who were interned. For example, in a 1999 interview with the CBC, Higawa herself said that, The effects of racism remain very deeply rooted in one's psyche and go on down through the generations, and that is a place where peace does not dwell. In 1988, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney gave an official apology on behalf of the Canadian government to the victims of Japanese-Canadian internment. Along with this apology, Mulroney also offered financial compensation to surviving Canadian-Japanese internees. This served as an important stepping stone towards reconciliation, as the government's acknowledgement of his wrongdoing brought Japanese-Canadian internment to the mainstream of Canadian historical discourse. However, 40 years later does seem a little too late to properly heal the wound. Although an apology and financial compensation definitely helps, it is difficult to make up for the decades of trauma and psychological burden, and this is something we must be remembering when discussing this topic. Now that we've covered some of the context behind Kagawa's poetry, let's each pick a favorite poem, read it out loud, and elaborate on our interpretations. Sarah, would you like to start us off?
0: I would love to. Many of Joy's poems are connected to her history with the internment camps. Her poem, Righteous Cleansing, is an excellent metaphor for the treatment of Japanese Canadians during the Second World War. This is Righteous Cleansing. Here we are, washing our hands, cleansing of all dirt, all skin, all blood, nerve, sinew, all bone, making transparent our clean, clean, clean hands. The first line of the poem, Here We Are, collectively encompasses all Japanese Canadians who were victimized by the internment camps. From the beginning, we understand that Kagawa is not only referring to herself, but also those who had a similar experience to her. By emphasizing the clean hands, she symbolizes how most of the Japanese Canadians were innocent, but the Canadian government was convinced that they must be cleansed or removed from society. Kagawa reflects on the harsh treatment of Japanese Canadians because they were not white European immigrants. Righteous cleansing can be read as an attempt by the Canadian government to assimilate or get rid of them. Scholar Arun Apadure remarks in his article, Heart of Whiteness, how how race is fabricated by societies. He argues that majorities and minorities are artificially created to protect whites in Western culture. Righteous Cleansing can be read as a critique of race and citizenship regimes and how poorly non-white people have been treated in Canadian history. Epidure says that the modern (coughs) nation-state and its preoccupation with the control, classification, and surveillance of its subjects has often created, revitalized, or fractured ethnic identities that were previously fluid, negotiable, or nascent. In this poem, Kagawa is arguing that when you look past skin, humans are made up of the same things blood, nerves, sinew, and bones. The Canadian government, who are seen as righteous, were trying to cleanse and get rid of Japanese Canadians, which is evident by their actions during and after the Second World War. Ian, do you want to tell us about the poem, I Know Who I Am?
2: (coughs) (coughs) Yes, the poem that I chose is one called I Know Who I Am. It reads, I'm free. I know who I am. For this moment, and this is how. First there was desire. Then there was unreality, then there was substitute desire, then there was unreality, then there was guilt, then there was pain, then there was reality. Then there was reality, pain, guilt, desire, confession, pain. He ate my pain. He ate me. There was cleanness. I'm free. I know who I am. I'm someone who's been lost by love. I'm lost. I don't know where I am. And this is how. I thought I was eaten by love, but there was unreality. There was hope, but hope was Eden. There was hate. There was pain. There was pain. There was desire. Substitute desire. Desire. There was unreality. I'm lost. I know who I am. I'm someone who's been lost by love. In this poem, Kagawa emphasizes the terms reality and unreality. Although at the end of the day, only Kagawa herself will know the true meanings behind her words, I interpret her use of these terms as a way of expressing the stark contrast of her existence under internment compared to the tamer environment which she lived in before and after the war. In this sense, unreality represents internment itself, despite being an actual reality. It is important to understand that this turn towards unreality is not necessarily unique to the Japanese Canadians. As the aforementioned writer Arjun Appardai argues in the article, The Heart of Whiteness, One can be considered a foreigner within their own country if they do not resemble the country's majority, whether it is physically or culturally. Although Apidurai is mentioning this primarily in regard to the American context and specifically in regard to the South, South Asian diaspora, this can be easily applied to the Canadian World War II story. It is important to remember, despite the existence of xenophobia, Japanese Canadians did relatively fit in and assimilate into Canadian society. However, it is evident by the government's actions that Japanese Canadians were seen as different by society at large. After all, Canada does have an extended history of anti-Asian racism going back to the 19th century and the eventual emergence of the fear of the yellow peril. When Japanese Canadians such as Kagawa were interned, this was a radical extension of an already existing view of Japanese Canadians being foreigners in Canada. In I Know Who I Am, Kagawa also stresses desire, guilt, pain, and hate. As scholars such as Robin Cohen mention, the diasporic experience is one marked by a negative connotation because of the feelings of exile and loneliness many diasporic groups endure. Now, I would like to bring to attention the title of the poem once more. It is called, I Know Who I Am. Kagawa's poem ultimately reflects the negative emotion which comes as a result of societal exclusion. Although negative, these emotions are part of who she is, and thus, part of her diasporic identity. This is not to argue that diasporic identity in itself is inherently negative, though. For example, Cohen's Babylonian analogy explores the idea that exile and displacement can be sources of enrichment. In the previously mentioned CBC interview, Kagawa compares her community to the little train that could. In that sense, her story is one of perseverance and redemption. I believe that this is reflected in the opening and closing lines of I Know Who I Am, where despite her hope being eaten away, she knows that she is a free being and she knows that the reason she was hopeless was because she was lost by love. Ultimately, this is something that is left for the reader to interpret.
1: Thanks, Sarah and Ian. That was great. Lastly, I'll be reading Joy's poem, Communication. Here's how it reads. You are swathed in layers of silly chains which I may not cut or burn or wrench away from you because you love them. To reach you, I must say, how beautiful are your chains today. Then I must kneel and tap my message on your chains and hope that you will hear. Communication is a very important piece in The Splintered Moon, as it raises themes of racism throughout society and the government during the internment period. There are two possible readings of this poem. The first being that the quote-unquote you in this piece is Joy herself. And that as she's writing this poem, she's explaining that she's become so institutionalized by the internment camps that she can only communicate in an institutionalized fashion. The second reading being that the U is actually the government of Canada, and that the government has become so enamored in its institutional ways of racism that it has allowed for civil rights to be violated during this time period. The government was no longer able to accept communication from outsiders, being Japanese Canadians, and as such, society was trapped, as Joy uses the word chained, in these racist ways. These two different readings were intentional to show the different sides and effects that internment camps have had on people and society of, the society in Canada. This poem and others in its collection highlight the loss of identity and the racial structures that have taken hold of the government during World War II. In terms of internment itself, the Japanese diaspora that was created through this violent dispersion can be compared to that of the Irish Famine. Many people are now beginning to publish articles and sources, including Mark McGowan, who wrote The Famine Plot Revisited, a reassessment of the Great Irish Famine as Genocide, which revisits the famine and explores how the Irish government was greatly to blame for this dispersion that soon followed. This article relates to the Japanese internment in Canada and how it was the government's actions that moved and dispersed Japanese Canadians in Canada to create this diaspora. Although this diaspora at first glance may seem to fall in the in-between in terms of other dispersions, it is still a diaspora community. Chadwick's chapter in The Diaspora Symptom explores this idea of how there are many different ways that a diaspora can be constituted and that they're not all similar but are connected through space, difference, and time. Japanese Canadians were violently forced to leave their homes and place in camps in the interior of British Columbia and Alberta, which left people to form their own communities based on their, difference, their differences and the space that they had been moved from by the government. Joy was actively part of the Japanese diaspora in Canada and has made many efforts to reconcile this event with the Canadian government and her community members through her writing. Joy's activism for the Japanese diaspora is incredibly important and evident in this collection of poems and other novels that she's written. She was able to explain her feelings of anger while highlighting the wrongdoings of the Canadian government before, during, and after Japanese internment of World War II. These themes are also brought up in her final and longest poem, We Had Not Seen It. Here's how the poem reads We had not seen it. None of us had seen it. It was not that we were incapable of sight, but we were shielded from it. Some of us knew, most of us knew, that behind that shield it was there. Some of us chose to forget. A very few of us, a very few of us, tore at the shield, tore wildly but none of us fully saw. Those of us who spent our day-long energies in battering at the shield knew that if we all, each with our own ten fingernails and two claws, clawed and grappled, it, w- it was at one endless stream of energy battered at the shield, we could see, and seeing, we could end it. But there were very few of and those of us who spent our day-long energy were weary at the end of our day with the futility of our scratch. Since so it came around the shield and began first with the few of us who were spending our energies battering. It came, and we could not see it coming, for the shield had welded to our eyes. And we lay there encompassed by it, as moment by moment it attacked us, devouring and decomposing us, until, nerveless and heartless, we ceased, and it prevailed. We had not seen it. None of us had seen it. It was not that we were incapable of sight, but we were shielded from it.
2: I noticed that Kagawa emphasizes the word it a lot here. What do you guys think Kagawa means by it?
1: Well, I personally think that this poem is an incredibly powerful way to end off the, this collection and that the piece uses the term it as a reference to the government of Canada and how those who were violently taken from their homes did not see them coming. They had to fight to see a future for themselves to try and protect themselves against the government itself. Um, And during this time period, no one was able to fully defend themselves against the government because it was so overpowering to Japanese Canadians who did not have the means to stand up for themselves and others did not stand up for them. Sarah, what about you? I agree with you,
0: Bronte, but Kagawa could also mean the racism that Japanese Canadians experienced before and after the war. Racism is a fabricated concept, one that cannot be seen until it is being used. It is also something that many Japanese Canadians fought against because they knew it was wrong, but it became impossible to fight when they lost their rights as citizens in the internment camps. They knew they were innocent, but the attack on Pearl Harbor sparked an instant fear of Japanese immigrants living in Canada. Racism segregated them from the rest of society, ensuring that it would be hard, if not impossible, to fight against it. It is also something that Japanese Canadians have had to, have, have had to fight to have reconciled. The Canadian government was not immediate in taking responsibility to right the wrongs they made against Japanese Canadians, waiting 40 years to issue an official apology.
2: Um, moving forward, at the end of the day, I think that this poem, like many of her others, serves as a form of activism and means of, wearing, of raising historical awareness. As she mentions in the poem, some people choose to forget. Ultimately, I think Kagawa challenges the choice to forget Canada's dark past. As mentioned earlier, it was the Canadian government that brought international and widespread attention to Japanese-Canadian internment. However, this could not have been done without figures such as Kagawa pushing for greater awareness of what happened in the decades before this. Therefore, I believe that Kagawa's poetry finds its value not only in its style, but also in its ability to shed light on the history of Japanese-Canadians. With that being said, I think it's time to wrap up this podcast. I'd like to thank my co hosts Bronte and Sarah for today's discussion, and also thank Hina Mystery and CFRC Kingston for making this happen. Thank you all for listening, and be sure to tune into the next episodes. Thank you.